Good evening. Good afternoon. We are resuming our Wednesday night series on translation and Bible difficulties. So last week we just kind of jumped in into Ezekiel 38, talking about Gog Magog and some peculiarities in that chapter. We talked about Tarshish, we talked about Rosh, and we had a good study. We talked about the young lions, and perhaps there's a connection with Great Britain and the colonization of the British Empire. The young lions. The young lions. Um, so we had a good time talking about that. One of the things we didn't really cover, and I kind of wanted to do it up front before we got too far into the study, and I'm not going to go really deep into it, but I wanted to kind of give a brief overview of what the different issues are when you're talking about translation and Bible difficulties. You really have three types of issues, and we're going to be touching on all three of these at some points um, whenever we're going through the study. So the first one is textual. So there are textual issues. Whenever there are discrepancies among Bible versions, it might be that there's a different text right. underlying that version, and that's why there's a difference. Gotcha. So it's not a mistranslation. It's just they have a different starting point. Different Absolutely. Um, the second issue is translational. So obviously that is everybody's got the same text. There's just a different way of translating it. There are some obscure Hebrew words that we've already looked at. Right. So looking at Tarshish, looking at Rosh, those are kind of obscure. There's not a lot of agreement on exactly what those words mean. So we tried to come up with some sort of explanation. And so translational issues, we're going to get into those quite a lot. And then lastly, exegetical issues. Mm -hmm. And so that has to do with an interpretation of sure. text. Uh, so... To kind of give you, for those of y'all who are listening to us, our basic stance on these three issues. First, when it comes to the textual issue, we hold to the Textus Receptus as God's preserved word. Sure. And among us right now, the translations represented that we're using tonight are the KJV and the MEV. Right. And those are Textus Receptus Bibles. And we were just lamenting the fact that the MEV isn't as popular and how we wish they could come out with some nicer Bibles, nice leather-bound Bibles, maybe have a KJV, MEV parallel that's right. well-made. But uh, we encourage you to check out that and compare it with the KJV. It is in the same tradition as the KJV, um, based on the same text. Sure. So it's sort of like the New King James. Um, in fact, some have argued that the MEV is more faithful to the text Receptus than the New King James is. Ah. But... Anyways, those are some TR translations, and we argue that God's seal of approval has been demonstrated on the Texas Receptus because of the traditional usage of Texas Receptus Bibles and how God has he's used those Bibles mm -hmm. all throughout church history. It's part of the mainstream church. It's not a manuscript here sitting on a shelf molding and collecting dust. It's right. not this Bible over here that's put in a wastebasket and really doesn't come to light until the 1800s. These are texts that have been used by the church since the very beginning. Since the very beginning. And so we believe that God's not going to approve of a translation 
or sorry, a text that um, has been used by the church by and large, and then just automatically in the late 1800s, people say, well, this really isn't the best text and we've sure. been using the wrong text all along and this is really the way we should go about things. And so I feel like people have put a little too much trust in the scholars Yeah, absolutely. and there's not a lot of faith in their approach to text, but the text receptus is the one that's used by the mainstream church for the English translations in general. That's what we're talking yes, about. Yes. Yes. So. In, in, well, in general for the Greek Bible. In, okay. Yeah. I mean the Byzantine textual family Right. Was the mainstream textual family. So that's the majority of Greek manuscripts fall into this traditional category. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. So so these are so just so I get it straight in my head and probably for people that are listening. So the Textus Receptus is the oldest and the one with the majority of of original not original obviously, but of manuscripts. Okay, so found the, the or, Textus Receptus those are good questions. The text receptus means in Latin, okay. received text. Okay. So it's the text received by the church. Okay. That's why it's been given that name. Um, it does represent the majority of manuscripts with a few exceptions. There okay. are a couple that we'll probably get to in this series that are not in the majority of manuscripts, but there's still good reasons to hold them. Sure. To accept them. But the text receptus in general agrees with the majority of Greek manuscripts. Um, nowadays, the most, the most commonly used text underlying modern versions is known as the critical text, the Nestle Allen text. And back in the day, it was called the Westcott Hort text. It's undergone a lot of change, a lot of sure. revision, because the whole idea is scholars have this critical method of approaching textual variants and deciding which variants are more, most likely original. So... It hasn't been the same since the late 1800s, but that's when the philosophy was introduced that, yeah. you know, here we have these new texts, which are called Alexandrian texts. That's they haven't saying. been popular. It's not true that they weren't known. They were known, yes. but they just weren't used. Like one of the most popular Codex Vaticanus, it was known by Erasmus, okay. who's the guy who made the first Greek edition of the New Testament that was printed sure. and taken to the press. So he was aware of this manuscript and other Bible scholars in the Texas Receptus tradition knew of it, okay. but they didn't regard these texts as being as reliable as the ones that were being used by the church at the time. So Interesting. Um, they, if they were alive today, they would you know, surely give us their reason <laughs> for rejecting those texts, but um, they weren't part of the mainstream faith tradition. They just weren't the Bible that was being used. Mm. And again, this was a time where people saw things from that faith perspective. Right. And they would say, well, this is the Bible the church has been using. This is the majority of manuscripts. So surely this is the, the Bible that God wants the church Absolutely. to use. Right. I mean, and that's very logical. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now, as far as the oldest, well, there is evidence that Textus Receptus readings that are distinctly Textus Receptus or Byzantine more generally are very old. So there are some examples of old Byzantine readings. Sure. However, what's been said is Alexandrian texts are the oldest surviving copies. And so people say that the oldest and the best manuscripts, these Alexandrian ones, they're also missing a ton and they disagree among themselves a lot. So if you take the two most popular, right. Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, if you put okay. them next to each other, 
they disagree with each other more than they collectively disagree with the Texas Receptus. I mean, they sure. I mean, so you hardly want to call them Alexandrian because that implies they're part of like this this unified Texas tradition, but they disagree with each other a ton. Mm. Um, and so, yes, they're very old, but they seem defective. And what some have argued is, well, the reason that they've survived even till this day is because no one used them. Right. The reason that the Texas Receptus is younger in terms of the manuscripts we have surviving today is because they used them up so much and they had sure, to make yeah. copies and copies and copies and copies. Um, and that's because this was the text used by the church. Alexandrian manuscripts, on the other hand, they weren't used. So mm -hmm. they were put away. And in general, they just sat, sat there, there. And because they sat there, they, they didn't wear out as right. fast as the others. Um, and so there's that. Hey, but, sorry, and I have another question. Yeah. So when we're talking about this, the Texas Receptus and what have you, are we talking about the Bible as a whole, meaning Old and New Testament? Or are we well, talking there is a New Texas Testament? Receptus for the Old Testament as well. Okay. Uh, it's the Binkayim version of the Masoretic text. Thank you. The Stuttgart version came later, and it's also known by other terms as well. But that is slightly different than okay. the Binkayim text, which mm -hmm. was used by the KJV translators and, and the other Hebrew scholars right. of that time period. Um, the differences are pretty minor. Okay. Uh, because they're minor, that's usually not something that comes up in the debate a whole lot. It mostly centers on the New Testament because there are a whole lot more variants. Sure. So when it comes to the Alexandrian Byzantine families, there's a lot more disagreement there. Uh, now, of course, overall, if you're listening, um, I'm pretty sure, and, and you will hear something different depending on the scholar you're talking to, yeah. but statistically, there's roughly 90% agreement when it comes to the New Testament. If you were to take all these manuscripts, Byzantine or traditional, and then Alexandria, and you put them side by side, it's about 90% agreement. Sure. And out of that 10% left over, a lot of those wouldn't affect the sense. Yes. But there is, there is a good chunk where several verses, several passages are missing. Missing or... And the meaning is altered by the variant. Sure. So that's where if you are a person who believes in inerrancy and that God preserves his word, you're going to have to make up your mind. Right. So where is God's word? Now... What a lot of people will do is they'll try to hold on to inerrancy, but they have a very loose version of it. And they'll say, well, I believe that the original manuscripts are inerrant. Mm. And then you ask them, okay, well, where are the originals? They're not around anymore, right? We don't have the original copies. Right. So which copies represent the original? And they'll say, well, we don't really know. So it's kind of an agnostic approach. They'll say the, the critical scholarship gives us an approximate, like this is approximately what we think the original mm -hmm. is. But here's the funny thing. They come out with a new edition every few years right. of what's approximately the original. Now, you can disagree with me if you want. That's fine. But again, from a faith-based approach, which says, hey, in Psalm 12, uh, it says that God will preserve his words from this generation forever. Right. And so he's going to preserve his word in every generation. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, that not a jot or a tittle is going to pass away. Right. So based on that, there has to be the word of God among the people of God for their use. So I, I doubt that what God meant when he gave these promises of preservation is, okay, well, you got to trust the scholars and they're going to tell you where it is, but they're going to change their mind every few years. 
And so you're not really going to be sure about the whole word of God. You're going to be sure about 90% of, it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but there's going to be a 10% there that you're not sure about. I just don't think that. I think that there has to be the word of God somewhere for the people of God to have access to where they can point to and say, this is the word of God. The word of God. Yeah. And every word in it should be accepted as authoritative and not changed and translated accurately. So the only people that are actually saying this are the traditional text advocates, Mm -hmm. the TR guys, Mm -hmm. the KJV only people do it too. They just do it a little bit more radically, but that there there is a growing number of like uh, people with college degrees, people with doctorates that are going back to the traditional text and saying, Hey, you know, a lot of people are equating the Texas Receptus with the KJV only position, mm. and that makes the Texas Receptus guys look bad, yes. but it's not the same thing. Right. Texas Receptus, uh, a priority, or God preserving his word in the Texas Receptus is not the same thing as, you know, KJV onlyism. It's right. not the same thing. No, absolutely And so not. you're seeing a, a growing number of very smart, intelligent people, especially in the Reformed community. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wouldn't agree with the Reformed <laughs> community on certain things. I mean, their view, their version of election, I, I don't agree with. But I think that when it comes to this issue, there is a huge resurgence. Interesting. That is taking place now. It's, it's enough to, if you, you know, go on the internet and you do a little research, you're going to see that it is growing. And, um, and that's very encouraging to see. Yeah, what what I find. Sorry, how can I put this? I once had a Muslim friend say, "Well, you have all these different versions. How do you know which ones?" You know, we know that we have the Word of Allah. And I'm like, well, you know, at the time I was a fairly new Christian, and I really couldn't back it up other than what happened was it made me investigate yeah. and, and dig in more. So, you know, I really should thank him one day for that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it strengthened my faith, mm-hmm. but it's a valid question to say, Absolutely. well, you know, we don't have the, you know, and, and we, we could say this. Okay. We could say, you know what? It's a good question, but how do you know that you got, you got the words of Allah because Uthman, the Caliph yep. destroyed every other version of the Quran Except uh, the version that he preferred. Interesting. So the version that you had, yes, is in complete agreement. All the versions of the Quran are the same. Because there was a guy who destroyed all the others. <laughs> oh, I did So, yes, yes, that is a fact. I'll have to use that one. Um, so, that's something... Well, you might want to be careful bringing that one up. <laughs> but, well, no, I mean... You know, but it, it, was, I mean, it, is, it was it a is, good conversation. It's a good point. Like yeah. It's like, hey, yeah, I mean, if uh, you had a king who destroyed every other Bible version and... Yeah, absolutely. And that's the way it happened. But, yeah. But the, the other stuff, I mean, I'm, this is a tiny rabbit trail, but Salman Rushdie, of course, was in the news lately by being stabbed. If you know who that is. Mm-hmm. Salman Rushdie was a guy that in the 80s, 90s, he wrote a book called The Satanic Verses. Yes, yes, right? yes, yes. Uh-huh. I know um, about the book. And, mm-hmm. and the book, you know, and there was a there, there was a thing that the, the Ayatollah put a thing out to kill him and all this. Um, but and I never read the book, but and recently I just sort of read an article about what the book was, and it wasn't saying that the Quran was satanic. What it said was they talk about there's a couple of verses that yeah. hold, right, and where it's where they said that Satan put Satan, Satan deceived Muhammad and stuck exactly those in right. there. Yeah, so it cast doubt on everything. Like if he could cause Muhammad to write those words, how do you know that the rest of it is right? Yeah. So they took that out, and that's that's what he's talking about. So, 
you know, I don't know how it, where, so there where is, we go there's, with there's this. A, but well, there's, there's a lot of doubt when it comes to the Quran. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, as far as the traditional text, I think that from an empirical perspective, there have been discoveries in recent years to show that, hey, look, the text receptus isn't this really late mm. text. There are early readings. Yeah that support the Texas Receptus, especially among the church fathers. Like you'll yeah. read the church fathers. They had to have a Bible yes, in of front of them and they're quoting from the Bible. And when you re look at those quotes, a lot of them line up with the Texas Receptus and not with, with the, the Alexandrian family. Mm -hmm. So um, there are different theories about that. Don't want to go into it too much, but that's the position that I think best represents God's promises sure. to preserve his word. And mm -hmm. if someone was to ask me, where is the Texas Receptus? I would say the text receptus, there are a few varieties. Among them, there's very little disagreement. Mm -hmm. And the disagreement in most places doesn't even affect the sense. Um, it would be, there's a definite article here and not a definite article there. Yeah, right, I mean, it's yeah. very minor. Um, so the differences among the text receptus editions are minuscule compared to the amount of differences among the Alexandrian you families. Put those, yeah. those with each other. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But of course, I, I would say, look, he said not a jot or a tittle. So that means I want to be sure about every word. Mm -hmm. So which Textus Receptus variety would I say preserves the word of God? It would be the one underlying the King James Version. Mm -hmm. And the reason I would say that is because no other Textus Receptus variety has been used by God providentially more than the King James. So it's not that the King James in, is inspired. That's right. what the KJV onlyist would say. It's Absolutely. not, it's not inspired the word of God. It, yeah. It's, it is, <laughs> it, it, it is God's, um, it's God's word in that it is a faithful translation of the text receptus. Yeah. And I would say when it comes to variants, if I was wanting to know which variant should I believe like, which, which one should I believe here? There's a verse missing here. Mm. The verse is present. What should I believe about that? I'm going to go with the King James because a it's based on the text receptus, but B, I mean, if we were just to look at statistics, no other Bible version, English language has the popularity mm. and has the pedigree. Yeah. of the King James. And so again, it's just like looking at it. If you were to step back and just look at history, like where's God's word, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. where is it? I mean, from, from that kind of perspective, I think that we could say the King James is gonna, is never going to leave you wrong. S since the 15th century. Is that? Yeah. King James 15th, 1611, 1611. Okay. Um, and before then there were good Bible translations too, but sure. it all culminated in the King James. Okay. Um, and, and everybody seemed to fall in line with it. I mean, the King James was the You're like, okay, yeah, got this, it. this yeah. was it. This was, they called it the English version. Right. Uh, if you read John Gill and Matthew Poole, like this is the English version. There's one. <laughs> right. And this is the one we use now, of course they would at times, and I agree with this. They would say, look, we can amplify the Hebrew and the Greek mm -hmm. and explain it more thoroughly because even the King James translators in the margins, you know, they have suggested alternate translations. And so, like I said, I don't believe that it's inspired, um, but I do believe that it's faithful and you have to have a standard or else it's just confusion. Yes. Um, and so anyways, that is one issue, the textual. And the other two are a lot less controversial, I think. Um, 
at least among evangelicals, formal equivalence has to do with translating the Bible literally. So the second issue would be the translational issue and what kind of Bible translation should you have? A literal one. Um, and again, I think KJV, MEV, NKJV, all of those are literal versions. They're not going to lead you wrong. Right. Um, and in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, just to kind of give a Bible verse that, that undergirds this, is the story of how Ezra, when he preached to the exiles after they had returned mm -hmm. back to Judah, He's preaching in Hebrew, and then he gives the sense, probably in Aramaic, because that's the language they were speaking, sure. and then he gave them understanding. So he read the Hebrew, he translated it into Aramaic, and then he gave them the sense, and the sense would be interpreting. Yeah. So there are three things there. He reads it, he puts it in a language they can understand, and then he helps interpret it for them. Sure. So what that means is when we translate, we need to do so uh, faithfully preserving the word of God so people can understand it, mm -hmm. rather than interpreting it as we translate. Those are two separate actions. Gotcha. We're going to put it in the language, and then we're going to explain it, rather than having those things go together. And so the dynamic yeah. equivalence would say, well, we'll do the, interpret uh, the interpreting while we translate it. So that way, what you have in your Bible is essentially both translation and commentary. Yes. And while your commentary may be sound, it's just the whole principle is off. It's not about your commentary. That's right. There is a place for that. Yes. In a commentary. Absolutely. But not in a Bible version, right? right? So you, you get, a, I'm sorry, you get a lot of that with, um, um, not to diss them at all, but denigrate what they've done, but with Wycliffe Bible translators um, throughout the world in these, you know, countries that, I'm sorry, people groups that don't even have a, have a, a written language or anything. Mm -hmm. And when they do their Bible translations, they're doing exactly what yes. you just said. And there is, there's that debate that goes on. And sure. I can remember we talked about this in missions class when I was in college. Mm -hmm. It was how much should we contextualize it? Yes. And uh, there were some people that were like, look, the word of God should be defined as the people understanding God's revelation. So that's how they defined it. Yes. And so again, the way they defined it it involves the idea of interpreting the word of God for the people. But that basically takes the choice out of their hands right. to interpret God's word themselves. You're doing it for them, yes. which um, is, is very arrogant. I know best. I'm going to do it for yeah. you. And it's not that preachers don't have that education and shouldn't preach the word of God to make it understandable. But right. you do have to give the people the word of God so that way... With they the Holy Spirit, they can they can use it as a standard to sure. judge your preaching. Because right. I mean, I don't I'm not afraid of that. Right. And you know, if somebody says, "Look, the Word of God says something different," well, let's talk about it. If it does say something different, then I'll confess my error. Amen. Um, but it's the Word of God that's the authority. Mm -hmm. It's not me as right. the preacher. So whenever you, as a translator, are doing the interpreting, you're saying that I'm the authority. Right. My understanding is the right way, and I'm going to give that to these people. Right. In their language, and so, um, you know, I I have several friends, I'll say, that have actually done translation for for people groups, and I think that it, it, for the most part, their you know their heart is right, and they're doing their best. I mean, things like this happens, right? Uh, something that is white as snow means nothing to somebody from Papua New Guinea. Snow is like what. Well, 
<laughs> so, and it's that kind of thing, but there's more to it, you know, from, I was told anyways, when they're doing these translations, yeah. how they get into it. So well, I didn't mean to go well, down for, that no, rabbit no, that's, trail. That's a but, good point. Like, yeah. so on the, on the surface, you might say, Hey, well, yeah, I mean, why should we translate something to confuse people? Wait a second though. Okay. Ezra reads it. Yeah. He translates it. And then he, and then it. he explains it. So what we should do is, okay, let's find some way to translate this the best we can. Yep. And even if they don't understand it, make them understand it by teaching the Bible. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Rather than giving a word a meaning that the original doesn't have, mm -hmm. maybe you're going to have to transliterate the word. That's possible. Yes. Sometimes that's necessary. We, we Saw that last week. Yes, and there are examples in the Bible, like the seraphim. Well, you could render seraphim literally as burning ones, but it's disputed. Does mm. it really mean burning ones? No one really knows. So what do you do? You put seraphim. Interesting. And I'm not a Hebrew. So seraphim's See, not a word that's that familiar to me in the English language, right? Sure, yeah. So it might seem like like snow. That's a foreign word. What does snow mean? Yes. Well, let me tell you what snow is. It's this white stuff that comes down from the sky. And they're like, oh, okay, all right. So sometimes you have to do that. Yeah. So where there is a word that you can use, use it. And if there's no word, I think that it would be dangerous to substitute it for something completely different. Yeah. Just because, hey, this, they'll understand this. So find something that's similar to snow. Okay. Yeah, something yeah. white from the perspective of someone living in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And we'll render it that way. But okay, but you're actually giving it a new meaning. Yeah, that's yeah. not what the word means. Yeah. So... You know, we should, one time when, when Peter and Pam are in town, we should do an interview about that. Yeah. You, you know who I'm talking about, right? I think you do. Yes. Okay. The Vanderdecker? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, as we carry on. So, okay. So th that's the second issue. The third issue is the historical grammatical hermeneutic. Very fancy, very long. But all that means is when you approach interpretation, you approach it also literally mm -hmm. so that would mean the plain Absolutely. sense go with the plain sense because it's god's desire for us to approach him as little children mm -hmm. god doesn't want to talk over our head That's he right. wants to talk to us matthew 8 18 3 we're to approach god as little children and i'll tell you what there's sometimes i'll talk to my kids and i'll use a word a metaphor uh yes. and they don't get it yeah they don't understand it and i have to be as literal as possible as clear as possible so they don't misunderstand me. So while the Bible does have metaphors, we generally recognize them when they're used. Um, when we see the words like or as, we know there's a comparison being mm -hmm. made, but God speaks so that way we can understand. Mm -hmm. So the idea of there being esoteric or allegorical or hidden meanings to scripture and only the uh, spiritual elite mm -hmm. are able to discover those meanings, that flies in the face of this doctrine that we approach God as children. Also, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God's not a God of confusion. Right. He's a God of revelation. In Psalm 119, 130, it says he gives wisdom. Uh, he gives understanding to the simple. So the word of God gives light and understanding to the simple. That simple means not very intelligent. Okay. Yeah. In, ter in terms of people who don't know a lot, not saying imbecile. That's yes. not what simple means. It means... You just are unlearned. You're ignorant. Mm. So if someone doesn't know, the Bible gives them knowledge. Okay. Yeah. 
and it, it gives light. It doesn't darken. It doesn't cloud. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hide. It reveals. Right. So this is the doctrine of the perspicuity. Uh, gosh, it's a hard word to say. Dry mouth gets me too. Perspicuity. Woo. Perspicu that's a tough would, one. Say that one five times. I can't even say Woo. once. For the longest time, I was like, how do you pronounce this? I had to like look it up. Perspicuity of scripture is the doctrine that God reveals himself clearly in his word and not allegorically, but literally. Yes. And as the, as the Baptist would say, as I've heard it said, and I've even, I got it right here in my Bible. Let me see if I can read it as it's stated here because I don't want to mess it up. If I can find it. It's the golden rule of Bible interpretation is what they call it. Let's see, where is it? Here it is, the golden rule of Bible interpretation. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word in its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicate clearly otherwise. God, in revealing his word, neither intends nor permits the reader to be confused. He wants his children to understand. Amen. And the author's unknown. Whoever said that, sure, doesn't heard, matter. Yeah, it's a wonderful that right there is a perfect description yep. of the historical grammatical hermeneutic. The only thing I would add is, yes, common sense, but also study the background. Yeah, study the background of the Jewish mindset, or study That's the background so of the important. Roman world. Yes, study the background of Gentile practices. You know, yes. those are things that will not be readily apparent to us until we do a little digging. So whenever it talks about, you know, women having head coverings. Right. Well, what are we talking about? We know, okay, it's talking about a little head covering. This is not sure. something spiritual. Yes. It's talking about something actually put on her head. Exactly. Right? Yes. That's the first thing we know. But what practice is this? And if we don't understand the practice, then we're not going to get the importance of it. The Easter bonnet. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, sure that's where the Easter bonnet comes I'm from. I'm positive right? that's where it comes yeah. from. Yeah. And, and there are some churches today, like Plymouth Brethren, um, they're sure. a Protestant group not very different than baptist in a lot of ways uh, and they still women wear where their doilies is that what they're called a little head yeah, covering with bonnet yeah, yeah. whatever they wear those still no, christy used to she used to have a head and covering. that's fine I, yeah. I i don't i don't believe in judging someone on the no, basis of I. something like that I, I i believe that there shouldn't be re reverse judgment yes. because i don't think the text is 100 percent clear about whether or not it applies today yeah. So if someone decides to do that, that's fine. It's also like the Sabbath. I don't think that the Sabbath is required. Right. In fact, Paul makes it clear it's not. However, if someone wants to keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. Sure. Right? I mean, I will not judge you right. if you keep the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Okay? And I'm sure there are benefits to it, but um, it's not required. Right. So anyways, that's the historical grammatic hermeneutic. Now, we are probably going to only get to two translational difficulties tonight, but they're pretty quick and simple. Some of these other ones are hard. I'm going to go ahead and give you a sketch. So if you're listening, you'll have something to look forward to. So tonight we're going to talk about a couple in Genesis, the word replenish and the word Nephilim. We're going to talk about those two and what they mean and why there's controversy at all surrounding them. Then we're going to talk, may not get to it tonight, but we're going to talk about the word kill in Exodus 20:13. It says, thou shalt not kill many modern translations. In fact, most, I think render that murder. Yes. So is there a justification for that change? We're going to look at the Hebrew. Um, we're going to talk about some other odd terms that are found in the traditional King James Version. Mm -hmm. and, and these are so um, 
odd that you're going to hear about them on skeptical websites that right. are trying to smear campaign the Bible, you know? And so Numbers 23, 22 mentions the unicorn, and there are actually multiple references to the unicorn. What is the unicorn? And that is a fascinating study. And AIG, <coughs> which is short for Answers in Genesis, they have a wonderful article on this by Elizabeth Mitchell. And so we'll talk about that. Um, Deuteronomy 23.17 uses the term sodomite. In fact, several times in the King James, it uses the word sodomite. And modern translations will say male cult prostitute. Or short as uh, cult prostitute. That. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Uh, that is something we'll look at. Yeah, that's interesting. That's insightful, I think. And then Isaiah 11.8 and some others refers to the cockatrice which is a type of animal that many skeptics will say, hey, that's a mythical animal, and it's mm. mentioned in the Bible. Why would you believe in a stupid book like that? So we'll talk about the cockatrice. And all of these are so insightful. And what I, what I found is if you just go online and you do a really quick search, guys, yeah. don't be lazy in your research. If you go online, you're going to find tons of articles that are only going to scratch the surface. And at first you're going to think, oh, well, maybe the King James translator shouldn't have rendered it that way. And then you start digging and you find that, oh, so they actually were not stupid and they were Hebrew experts and they did know about the Hebrew mm. opinions of <clears throat> Rabbi Kimchi sure, and, yeah. and, and Rashi and uh, all these other people who lived in the Middle Ages that were Hebrew experts and are still respected as such today. And they had good linguistic grounds yes. for choosing what they went with. and. People just, they're so lazy. They don't even look at it. Tim Chafee, um, he mentions about the unicorn. He has Midwest Apologetics as his website. Got good stuff on. I really like him. Um, he mentions the unicorn. Mm -hmm. And he says, it's like they didn't even try. These skeptics, they just think, oh, unicorn refers to a horse with one horn. And we know that that's not true. We know that's only in My Little Pony. So you right. can't trust the Bible. Yeah. He's like, they didn't even do their research. If they just took a second, they'd realize the King James translators did not believe in unicorns in that sense. Yes. And so we'll get into that. We'll talk about satyrs. The King James mm. uses the word satyr often. Yes. And believe it or not, that's exactly what it says in the Hebrew. Yes. So, yeah, Sayer. Yeah. Okay. okay. Sayer. Yes. Um, and there's linguistic grounds for saying that they're related to each other. And so we'll talk about those. Uh, dragon. Okay. While modern translations do retain dragon, they remove dragon in every place. I know this, at least with the ESV. Uh, it's the one that I've compared the most. Um, it removes dragon in every place where we're talking about a literal animal. Now, if you're talking about, let's say, Pharaoh, and he's being compared to a dragon in some metaphorical sense, or it's uh, referring to a well, like maybe it's called the dragon well. Yeah. Well, now we're talking about a place name. We're talking about a metaphor. In the New Testament, the devil's called a dragon, obviously, you know. Got to call him something. Yeah, yeah and right, it does yeah. say dragon there in the Greek. So they will use dragon, but, but not when it's referring to a literal animal. So there's like that's 13 funny. some odd references in the King James where dragon is used to refer to an actual animal in context with other, in, sorry, context, in context with other animals. And in the modern translations, it's jackal. Now, tell me. What animal could be more different from a dragon than a jackal? Yeah. So a you're bunny? something. I mean, you something's know. going on there, right? Yes, yeah. So we'll look at that too. To hide that. That's. Anyway. But these are all fun translational 
studies that we'll have. Um, and then maybe we'll talk about textual studies at some other point. But mm -hmm. we're going to look at some of those first. Now, in Genesis 1, verse 28, we'll see if we have time to get through a couple. These are the smallest ones here. I have less writing on these because they're easier to explain. But Genesis 1, 28, it says, God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So you've got the MEV. Trying to get there. When you get to Genesis one twenty eight, read that because I'm curious the way it translates it. God blessed them. God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the every living thing that moves on the earth." I mean, that's like almost identical. Yes. To the King James, other than the moveth. Uh, right. The movie other than that, the, even yeah. even replenish the word we're looking at is identical in the MEV. Uh, other translations wouldn't use replenish; they'd say fill, um, fill the earth, and that is acceptable. But what we're looking at is: is there an error here? Uh, the Hebrew word for fill is male, and it means to be full or filled. Now, the word replenish. In English today has the connotation of refill. So a lot of people, due to the influence of the Schofield Reference Bible, have really latched onto this and said, this proves that there was a pre-Adamite race. Oh my word. Okay. And that God wiped out this race and he made the earth without form and void. This was the same time that Lucifer fell from heaven and everything was judged with a flood called Lucifer's yes. flood. Yeah. And then after that, God replenished the earth in the sense that he filled it again. And so today there are a lot of KJV onlyists who are Schofield reference Bible lovers. And I like the Schofield reference Bible, but sure. in, in this particular doctrine, teaching, I firmly disagree. I don't think there's any evidence for a pre-Adamite race at all. Um, I think we should, as we just looked at the golden rule of Bible interpretation, exactly. plain sense, and I don't see it there right. at all. And no matter how many times I tried, and I, and I have, if you're one of those people listening to me, I have tried to see things your way, yeah. 100%, and I just can't find any it's evidence to convince me. Um, so replenish from the 13th century until 1612, which was a year after King James yeah. was translated, there are no recorded instances at all of replenish meaning fill again. So throughout that time, and that's a lot of time, 13th century to 1612, replenish had the consistent meaning of... And sorry, and before that, there, it didn't exist. Yes, I'm okay. pretty sure that it didn't exist in the English language okay, yet. Gotcha. So, so go ahead. The word meant to fill. So it was identical to the Hebrew word male, which means to be full or fill. And, and it's not like plenish, because I don't think that's such a word, is it? Uh, I, I don't think so. No. So replenish, that, that, and that's where they, they would get that whole Yes, get absolutely. It again. So is there yes. a word plenish? No. And so, so why would this replenish? Is, this is where <laughs> etymology, like breaking down yes, words, yeah. is sometimes, well, it's often unreliable. Okay, It yes. doesn't convey the sense just by breaking it down. Every now and then it does, but yeah. it doesn't always. Uh, in fact, when you take two words like that and you put them together, sometimes it changes the meaning entirely. So uh, right here I have a note, and I recommend this Bible. Um, 
because it's got a built-in dictionary and this guy's done a lot of work. It's called the Define King James Bible. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they're still selling these. I'm sure you can find one used, mm. but they're really well, like well bound. Like the leather's good quality, and they're very cheap, very inexpensive. But um, it gives the archaic, obscure meanings to English words. It's basically got a built-in Elizabethan dictionary here so you don't have to look it up it's got it right here i mean yeah and so it boldens words that are not usually used in modern english uh some of them we're we're familiar with like the word foul Mm -hmm. most people are familiar with that yes um the word meat we would generally associate it with like you know an animal yeah but the word in elizabethan times would be as food just meat is food um wherein we might use that, you know, in a fancy context. Um, but in the UK, especially. Yeah, a, a compasseth or compasseth, mm. meaning to encircle. Yeah. See, these these are sort of fence, fence yeah. thereof. These are words that we're not totally unfamiliar with, but they're just kind of obscure. We don't use them as much. Mm-hmm. But replenish is emboldened here. And if you look at the footnote for the Defined King James, it's, this, it's archaic. It means fill, populate. <laughs> and if you go back to the way this term was used when 1611 KJV was being made, um, replenish just meant to fill. to fill. So for people who are latching on to this term to justify some pre-Adamic race and subsequent destruction, um, you need to find somewhere else to look for evidence because mm. replenish is not where you're going to find it. So this actually brings up a quick topic. We won't spend too much time on this, but... At what point do we say we need a new one, a new Bible version? That's Mm. really the big question. Um, There are advocates for the idea that let's do what this guy did, um, the Define King James. Let's just put a built-in dictionary. Mm. And because these people did have a level of expertise that I'm not saying it can't be reproduced today. I'm sure it can. Well, yeah, Um, but but the people that make Bible versions today, they do know their stuff. Mm. But one would wonder, do they know their stuff like these guys did? In some cases, yes. But what are the statistical odds of getting Mm. together over 40 Bible translators Mm. that have the same level of expertise as these people? I mean, I read earlier that uh, one of the guys that was ahead of a committee, there were several different committees for the King James, um, and they broke into groups and they, you know, had certain assignments. Well, the head of one, I think his name was Lancelot Andrews. And he had um, learned 15 languages. And he was not just like reading, like he could yeah. converse mm. in 15 different languages. Um, and so, and this was not like rare. There were a number of KJV translators that knew multiple languages. Uh, Chaldee, Persian, Coptic. French, Latin, German, and it's because they had, this is not just then, this is the classical education they had back Absolutely. then. Absolutely. We've really become an illiterate society. And especially in America. Especially in America. All it's, of North America. It right? is absolutely astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Back in, even in the 1800s, people look, you know, their governess, if you could afford one, you know, yeah. if you had a governess, you would learn Latin yeah, and absolutely. Greek and yeah. French and German. Yeah. And so by the time you're an adult, these are languages that you're familiar yeah, with. Familiar with yeah. This is not something that can be said of today. No. So again, we'll wonder, will, will we ever 
Will we ever be able to produce as a society mm. the kind of elite translators that they had back then? Yeah. So again, that's not maybe the best argument, but it's just something to consider. But if you have a reliable translation, if it can be established that you got a really good one on your hands, okay? Not perfect, not inspired, but a good one. Why don't we just stick with the good one? And if we need to update things to not go too far, which always happens anytime someone says, oh, we're just updating the language. They don't just update the language. They end up changing the meaning. Mm -hmm. And so why not just put a dictionary in it and let the text speak for itself? That is, there's a case to be made for that. I'm, yeah. Again, I like the MEV and I yeah. like the New King James. Mm. And so I am not against either of those. I thought the New King James wasn't based on the same. It is, there, there are some questionable choices that they made. Yeah, I think the MEV is definitely an improvement. I think it's better. Okay. Um, but it follows the Texas Receptus more than any other modern version would. Mm. So at least it's got that going for Sure. Yeah. So I think there are places where they go with other things, like they go with the Septuagint. They make yeah, some yeah. choices whenever they're translating the Hebrew, the Masoretic text. They don't always follow the Masoretic text faithfully. Right. Um, so anyways, that's, that's something. But um, this would be a case of, should we just update this? Should we just say replenish means fill? Well, I noticed that the MEV just keeps it as replenish because that's yeah. what we're doing. We're yeah. filling. And I think that if any, <laughs> I think that if anybody you know, just took a second to look up the term and understand its meaning, yeah, then you discover, oh, it doesn't actually mean to fill again. And that's not what the Hebrew means. So what I'm trying to say yeah. is there, there's no error here. No. So we could argue this is outdated. But it's not an error. Not really, because we still use the word replenish. But we use it to refill things. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what it comes down to. Yeah. But it's, when people say there's an error, it's usually reading back into. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I'm saying. Um, now, Genesis 6-4. Let's move on. So that one's pretty simple, right? Yeah. Uh, Genesis 6-4. This one is a little less simple, but fun all the same. And I'm curious to see what the MEV has for this one. So you read the MEV first, Genesis 6, 4. Uh, you're going to like it. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Great. Great. Yep. Uh, pretty good. Um, they transliterated Nephilim. Yes. So they decided they opted out of translating it. Yep. Now, um, the KJV, like I said, occasionally does transliterate terms cherubim seraphim it doesn't render those um in any literal way because even the the jews would debate like what does cherubim mean yes is this a class term like referring to a kind of angel generally that's what they believe so they don't like render cherub into something literal right mm -hmm. um so yeah but i think that you would find that in the kjv there are more instances of where they choose not to transliterate it and they actually give you a word. While in a lot of modern versions, they will transliterate it. Uh, and it's just a different philosophy. For the word Sheol, yes. which is translated hell, hell. often, and uh, it can be translated death and grave, many places in the King James, it renders it as hell. Yes. And I don't think there's a single place they render it as Sheol. 
And in their mind, they're thinking, we're giving this to English-speaking people. Sheol is a Hebrew word. Right. So what we'll do is we'll translate the word. <laughs> and so they translate it as death, grave, or hell. While modern versions will often just say Sheol. Because they're not sure which one they Because, they, yeah, so they'll just say Sheol. So they didn't perhaps feel comfortable in every case. Um, so there's that. But Nephilim is another example where the KGB translators said it means giants. So it looks translated as giants. Okay. And modern translations, a lot of them will say Nephilim because they're like, we don't really know what it means. Sure. Now there's a an etymology debate around this. Some people think that it comes from the verb nafal, which means to fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some people think Nephilim literally means fallen ones. Um, however, uh, Tim Chafee, he's written a book on this and, and he's the first one that I've heard make this argument, but he defends the reading giants because he says that if you were going to construct um, a noun form from a verb like that, um, if it was from the verb nafal, there are certain vowel rules in Hebrew you would have to follow. I remember getting a chart back in college with all those vowel rules, and it was a lot. Yeah, yeah <laughs> a yeah. lot to memorize. He says, following those rules, if you're deriving the word from nafal, it would be nephulim or nofelim. So it'd be Nephulim or Nophelim. Mm. So it would not be Nephilim. Sure. So he says the reason that the King James translators render it giants is because they were familiar with the cognate language, Aramaic. Back then they called it Chaldee. Right. And the word for giants in Aramaic is Nephilim. Now, in Aramaic, the plural is slightly different. It's an N at the end instead of the M. Yeah. Nephilim, Nephilim. But the singular in Aramaic is Nephil. So, ah. w- so the King James translators would say, okay, well, let's follow the cognate language. In Aramaic and Hebrew are very closely related. Nephilim is a giant. Is a nef- Nephilim is giants. And Nephil, or Nephil, is giant. So Nephilim is the Hebrew equivalent of the Aramaic Nephilim, and it means giants. So that's how they rendered it. And not just them, but also the, the Septuagint, they also rendered it as, I think it's Gigantes mm-hmm. in Greek. And it's because they knew that that's what the term meant. Right. But today there's the debate surrounding the etymology. Is it actually giants or is that perhaps maybe the Aramaic term, some might argue, uh, means giants because over time the Nephilim were associated with giants, but the term, but they don't exactly mean the same thing. They would say yeah. Nephilim were giants, but Nephilim doesn't mean giants. While the King James translators just said the cognate word Nephilim means giants. Yes. Nephilim is the equivalent, so it means giants. So it's kind of like who's wrong here. I don't think that it's wrong to render it Nephilim. No, I think fallen ones is questionable. So I think at this point you should either say Nephilim or giants and either one is acceptable. The KJV translators are the ones that actually stepped out and said, we're actually going to go for this and translate it into something in English (laughs) while, while Nephilim would just be retaining the Hebrew. Right, but but that is not to say that the Nephilim weren't the fallen ones. So that that's another thing. Some people, and I don't want to 
get off track with this, but you know, it does come up when you're talking about it. Um, fallen ones. What would that mean? Because we know that the offspring are not fallen angels. No, they're the offspring of, of fallen, fallen angels. angels. So some people have like conflated uh, these yeah, two yeah, yeah, and yeah, said that you. the Nephilim are the fallen angels, but they're actually not. Not correct. So fallen wouldn't be fallen angels. Fallen ones would have to do something with the abomination of this this union. So they are fallen ones because Nephilim are literally fallen from God's desired order of creation. They have fallen from his perfect, very good creation. Absolutely. Um, and so that I think the sons of God came into the daughters of men by committing sins. The Nephilim. Yes. So, but here's the thing. Um, so there's an argument that Nephilim literally means giants, but even if it doesn't literally mean giants, there is a strong textual tradition or translation tradition to render this giants mm -hmm. in the LXX goes that route. Um, and we know that they're giants. Yes. <laughs> we know that they are. If you read numbers 13, it's pretty clear that they were giants. Yeah. So you have not only the internal evidence of scripture that Nephilim refers to giants, but you also have, the cognate language, mm. Aramaic. So um, I think that when it comes to Nephilim or giants, either one is acceptable. I think that they both work. Um, I think that, again, I think fallen ones, it's possible that it means fallen ones. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew expert, as you could probably tell. And the vowel rules, according to people who know more than me, who are experts, seem to rule out fallen ones yes. and that would either say okay well we have no idea what it means <laughs> so let's just put it in english as nephilim sure. or aramaic if we follow aramaic right and it seems to be following all the rules means giants right so there you have it okay so that one's pretty simple i think yep. um what time do we got we got uh, it's nine o'clock it's nine o'clock we probably need to stop don't we yeah, we should okay so if you're listening to us next week, we're going to resume talking about thou shalt not kill. Should it be kill or murder? We're going to talk about unicorns. We're unicorns. We're going to talk about Yeehaw. the cockatrice. We're going to talk about sodomites. Ugh, no fun there. Uh, <laughs> and so please join us. Hopefully you've learned something. God bless you.